Welcome back to Transformative Teaching, a facet at IU podcast. I am Katie Madsen. Before Michael points it out, I'm back. Hi, Michael. Hi, Katie. How are you? Good. Good to be here again chatting with you and our guest, Janet Decker. Hi, Janet. Hello. How are you? How are things? I'm doing fantastic. Great. Janet is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership in Policy Studies in the School of Education here at IU Bloomington. So it's rare, but we have three Bloomington people on the podcast right now. Janet, we're recording this. Um, it's August. August is always a little flinchy, right? You get into August and you just twitch a little bit. How are How's your August going so far? You know, um, surprisingly well, I think uh, having my son back at school has just opened up some time for me. And so I feel like the past couple of weeks have been really good. I've also, uh, IU offers writing retreats. And so I got to do a couple of those. So I'm feeling like now I can really focus on my teaching because I got some writing um, out of the way and met some deadlines. So yeah, I'm feeling good. It's a new year. There's always like new shiny opportunities always something shiny at the beginning yeah. and I have to keep my brain on that when it's November <laughs> and I'm in the trenches yeah there is something really beautiful about just kicking your kid back onto the bus for the beginning of the year right <laughs> I, I feel that in my soul mine's yeah. going on the bus two and a half hours earlier this year so that's like life changing oh, wow. wow even middle school yeah I gotta see and I'm on the other side of this I got a kindergartner my second kid two of two on the bus so they're both on the same schedule it's beautiful just oh, that's miraculous nice. michael empty nester yeah uh i my kids don't, my kids don't ever take the bus school yeah. bus anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they don't live with you either so there's no they don't lots they're of pros to that right <laughs> but they're doing well they're doing well great they don't get to have summer vacation anymore either Oh yeah, that is kind of a bummer. That would, yeah, that is fun with little kids. So we're kind of talking shiny, about. I want to hear about shiny things, though. That's what I was going to say. Janet, what, 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 what shiny do you, is in your, right your future, near future? Oh, I just the energy that uh, you know comes onto campus, and yeah. the new semester is always a whole new. You know, each class has a personality, and so just yeah. getting to know my, uh, I, I teach one this fall. I'll be teaching one large undergrad class, and they'll you know, be full of new personalities and take on their own personality as a class. And I'm just looking forward to getting to know them. I get to work with uh, a number of graduate students in that class too. So I'm excited about working with them. Just, it'll be good. So you're you're teaching an undergrad class this year? I am. Yes. I've been teaching um, the legal and ethical issues in education class at the School of Education. That sounds interesting. Um, Yeah. I've been teaching it for, I was, when I was thinking about talking with you all, I was like, you know, as an associate instructor, and then I came back to teach it as a professor, it's been almost 20 years on and off. And um, yeah. And so I've been teaching just that class during the fall and spring semesters. This will be my fourth year straight. And then the summer I teach uh, graduate students. So this, this is an interesting question. One, One, I don't think I've asked on the podcast before, but you talk about this subject large class specifically for undergrads and and a similar class I think is offered at the graduate level right and I've I've run into this as well what's the difference when you think about these two classes that are really similar in content with super different audiences maybe disparate class sizes what do you have to think about that um, differentiates those two classes just with the, the subject matter um 
just making it practical, you know, so my undergraduates haven't been teachers. And so I have to make it practical for them. And then my graduate students are longtime teachers or principals or superintendents. Um, so they get it. They're motivated about the content because they get how important it is. So definitely making sure that it's practical for, you know, pre-service teachers. Also, um, I when the modalities are quite different. So um, typically with the graduate students, it's asynchronous online. And with the undergraduates, it's always synchronous in person, large class versus small. Um, yeah, so I even though the content is similar, I the teaching methods um, are quite different. I'm curious. I, I, I have your uh, teaching philosophy open here and <laughs> you, you talk about this ethic of care. And you, you talk about care, concern, and connection, and um, kind of just feeding off of what you were just saying about the, the difference in the modalities. How, do, how does this look different in your online modality versus your in-person teaching? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I'll just say, you know, I focus on that ethic. Um, I could notice it when I was a law student, and one of my uh, professors who was not a law professor, she uh, was from gender studies, I saw how she incorporated it into her, her teaching, um, her professor, Malty Douglas. But um, so one small kind of silly way is um, recognizing when it's in person, it's the undergraduates, recognizing what's new and, and important in their lives. For instance, they're always coming to me late at, in the evening, you know, after a full day, oftentimes they're um, uh, at schools and the full day of classes and they're hungry. And so one small way that I even then talk about the ethic of care with them and so that they hopefully can incorporate it into their teaching is, you know, I know they're coming to me hungry. So oftentimes I'll have snacks yeah. um, or I know they're tired. So I'll try to really make the class engaging or I know they care about, you know, what's happening in their worlds, whether it's pop culture or the IU basketball team. So I try to incorporate that kind of, um, you know, topics into, you know, so um, if I have a scenario, maybe I'll make it roughly based on some kind of pop culture issue instead of just a, you know, generic scenario. Yeah. And then I guess then thinking about it with my graduate students, similarly, I try to meet them where they are. And so the, a lot of them are working professionals and, and they're really busy during the week. So I try to make sure that um, they always have a weekend and that I'm somewhat available for them in a way when they are not working or when they're at night and just try to take their schedules and their professional responsibilities into consideration. Additionally, you know, just um, focusing on what they they care about and what struggles they might be having. having. So um, for instance, with some of the you know principals or school leaders, there there's certain seasons of the year when they're at the end of the school year or there's um, you know different standardized testing that stresses them out. So I just try to pay attention to that in my teaching. Yeah, so I, Katie, I, I want to ask one follow-up, and then I, <laughs> I can see that you're chomping a bit here. Um, so I kind of, I, I wanted to dr drill down on that just a, a little bit more. You know how faculty always say, oh, each, each class sort of has its own personality. Each group of students is different. So what that would mean is that you talk about this paying attention, but like, how do you really get a sense of this is what my students need in this class? This is what they're interested in this class. I mean, what, what are you doing in, to, to kind of get this? Yeah. Um, so I think asking a lot of questions, uh, I try to have uh, anonymous Google forms that might go out. 
I also started, and I even do this with my in-person uh, students. I used to do it just with my online students, but have each week an open-ended question that might be kind of silly or it might be related to class. And so that I have more individual dialogue with them on a one-to-one -one basis. And so I try to do that also in person as I'm coming into the classroom or leaving the classroom. Um, but having that, you know, open-ended question, I think I get a lot of information about, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed because I have, you know, all these huge assignments in all my other classes or, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so um, excited because I'm going to the final four game or whatever. You know, I just find out a lot of information that way by asking a lot of questions. Yeah. I um, actually, Michael, it's funny. You said I was talking to bit. That was the exact same question I had, <laughs> which is a good okay. thing, I think. Mind um, well. I'm, so <laughs> I have a follow-up question to this though, because I've, as an, so I'm an accounting professor and the, the students are a little more straightforward, I'd say, maybe a little more, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll just say it that way. How about that? So my question that here works. is, I've wanted to do something like this in my own classes, have this open-ended question, but I try to balance this between, I feel like I can get to know them, you know, by walking around talking to them. So I want to learn about them, but I also feel like they might need me to keep it focused a little bit more on the subject because like to what extent do they care what advice do you have for somebody like me who tries to balance that I want to get to know everybody and make them feel comfortable but I might be teaching an audience um who is it as receptive to that yeah approach to care I've found that some of my students have mentioned you know that very rarely but if they don't, then they just, you know, it's not, it's an optional question. So they just don't answer it. And then I also just try to keep it like questions that are, are just anybody might want to answer. So kind of icebreaker questions. Um, and then I also sometimes don't have some part paired with my question might be something that I think uh, applies to the ethic of care or something like, I know it's midterms and it's really, you got a lot going on, or I know you know, we have a lot of assignments and something that hopefully shows some empathy that I understand where they might be coming from. Yeah. So even if they're not asking a question, I, I try to communicate that I'm, I'm trying to see it from their shoes too. Just as a side note, that's a good way of taking sneaky attendance. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. it is. I mean, you don't have to, or to taking sneaky engagement. If people are looking sneaky for a way to measure what Sneaky engagement. I like that. Sneaky engagement. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. I've heard, should, uh, and I think some of the discussion instructors I work with, uh, they, you know, I've suggested they do this instead of if they are taking attendance or, you know, on occasion, especially if it's like a, a Zoom class, is to, you know, have some, um, you know, dichotomy. Uh, do you like, you know, Taco Bell or McDonald's better or Coke yeah. or Pepsi oh, or whatever? Yeah, and, and it's some real quick kind of, um, you know, they get to answer something about their How you sneak opinions. vegetables into lasagna. That's yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> right? No, that's fascinating. Yeah, because I've always kind of thought that would be so fun. And then I think about the person I am and the type of student I teach and go, I don't know if they would receive that well. So that's fascinating. It's something I, I think I'm going to try to incorporate this fall, actually. Yeah, so so what, what I heard in all of that is I heard there's like these proactive approaches, um, you know, where you're setting up the open-ended questions and, and and that kind of thing. But then you also have these very responsive approaches where um, you, you're, 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 you know, revealing that you care about where they are. And, um, and I, I appreciate that you're taking both of those, both of those kinds of avenues to, to, you know, show, show that care 
overall. Um, the, other, the other thing that jumped out to me is that, um, and what, one of the things I'm hearing about is there's a lot of effort to let students know they belong uh, in, in your classes. And um, I, I see that you have a commitment to UDL. And what kind of over, overlap do you see between kind of this uh, um, care, you want to have belonging, a sense of belonging in your class and, and universal design for learning? Yeah, um, again, I think it's uh, another example would be before the semester starts, uh, they fill out a questionnaire. And one of the questions is what is specific about about your learning, about your learning. And I also do a group conversation, you know, what kind of teaching strategies do you like and what do you not like? Um, and what is your individual learning style? And so I also get to find out um, a lot of unrevealed um, struggles or uh, even disabilities that uh, I find in higher education, mm -hmm. students don't um, get the support for as, as readily as they might in K-12. And so that's helpful. Or they might say, you know, I work five jobs or, you know, so, um, so anyway, so then trying to pair that with my class, I try to have somewhat standardized assessments because it's really hard to then uh, measure, you know, on an equitable basis. Um, so I wouldn't say with UDL, I, I changed too much with the assessments, but maybe the modality and a lot of the teaching strategies, I try to take okay. their different learning needs into a, a, a consideration. So one really popular thing that sometimes I wonder if I'm um, spoon feeding, but it is a, a UDL approach. And I talk about how, why this is a UDL approach is in my large lecture, I've started uh, providing a, a handout that is a fill in the blank handout and um, mm -hmm. students love that. Um, sometimes again, I wonder, is that giving them too much handholding? But I think it's a way that that engages them and they appreciate it and it holds their attention. And um, yeah, so, and then they have that, those notes um, that really highlight the main objectives of each class um, to take with them. So. You know, I question whether that's too much, but then I feel like, well, the answer is if they're effectively learning the content and they th right. they seem to be yeah. doing so. It is not handholding, by the way. The research supports strongly, heavily, that the more information you give your students about the in-class lecture ahead of time, the better um, listeners they will be. And so I, like you, thought that it was too handholding, and I tangential to this and very heavily into the inclusive classrooms pedagogy realm right now. So I'm like, I'm not going to bore you with the research, but there's a lot of it. Um, I started giving slide decks in full, actually 100%. Uh, now I don't lecture very often, but 100% of the material they're going to see except answers to the example problems are on my side ahead of time. And I've gotten phenomenal feedback from my students. I was actually able to listen to you and not frantically write or yeah. my concentration, my efforts were better spent in the class. Um, getting context for the material. Yeah, I do that too it. on Canvas. I always have whatever yep. my PowerPoint will be, it will be up, up ahead of time. You are not hand-holding and, and hand-holding isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's it's inclusive. It's that culture of care, like you said. So and, just, and, and there's the whole scaffolding, right? I mean, yes. we, we care about scaffolding. We, we, we know that students are gonna need our help at the beginning of the semester. And as the semester progressive, progresses, they, they can use little less and less of our help. And by the end, they don't need the scaffold to do great work. I mean, Absolutely. that's what we hope for, that's right? True. Yeah. 
Can we, yes. um, let's switch gears a little bit. We, if things are shiny and sparkly and amazing, I'm glad <laughs> you feel that way. I needed a pep talk this morning. I feel like it's- Talk to me in a couple of weeks. I don't know. <laughs> I know, I know. Let's follow up on this on August 23rd. Um, talk to me about the middle of the semester. So here's why I asked this question. One thing I'm really trying to do here, gave myself a thousand pep talks about this. I gave my husband a pep talk who did not need it. Um, and- I don't want to get into that middle of the semester. I feel like I'm in the trenches. I'm, I'm really trying to avoid that. So tell yeah. me where you're going to be in yeah. the, middle of the semester. Given I've had, had this right uh, kind of mid semester, you know, awareness uh, for a while, but it really hit during the couple of years of the pandemic. And um, so some of the strategies I did then I've just continued on because especially that undergrad class I'm talking about, it's in the evening. And whether it's the fall semester and there's IU basketball games, or mm. if it's spring semester and there's senioritis or little five, there's always something in that, that spring break, you know, there's always something that mid semester yeah. plus for all of us. Right. That's so true. we start to recognize, oh, all those research deadlines. I didn't, you know, I, I need to get done. They're, they're looming large. Um, so I just. I structured the course where I front load it. The hardest exams are actually in the beginning of the course. The most content is in the beginning of the course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, toward the end of the course, have some flexibility. And this is not only for uh, me, for the students, but also for the co-teachers who are, are uh, most of them are busy law students and um, they have exams. So there's an online week, a week that there's uh, the same content objectives is there, but it's a narrated PowerPoint and online assignments. I try to make the more fun. So, you know, some of the antics of fun. So whether it's, uh, you know, a final four bracket in the spring, um, which also has like a favorite snack bracket contests that are, are, you know, just quick contests just to try to have more non-content fun type of activities. Uh, We had like a mutt match last year where students guessed the dog that belonged to the student. Um, (laughs) uh, Let's see what else. So yeah, just trying to think about the end of the semester being more challenging and increasing the fun. I also purposely have a teacher leader panel where students, you know, show up and there's a corresponding assignment but there's not reading before class and there's still so much learning going on, but it's a, you know, a different type of um, class session. And I put that toward the very end of class. That's interesting. So I, I, I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know. Yes. Um, and we so bonded about our, our student loans. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> I was in a hallway somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, we, the, the kind of teaching that you're doing is very different from the kind of teaching I experienced when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, I think you're a PhD JD, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious where you kind of got this, learned this approach to the teaching and learning and kind of piggybacking on that. Are there any kind of champions that you have in terms of your development as an instructor? Yeah, absolutely. I reflect on that a lot because um, I resisted becoming an educator. I resist. I wasn't formally trained as an educator. I I hate that our society has uh, some of these um, resistances to the profession of education. Um, and I'm so grateful that I, I I you know wised up and now am an educator. 
But um, yeah, so the, if I think of a single champion, that's an easy one, Suzanne Eckes. Uh, she was a FACET member as well, or is a FACET member. And um, uh, her, you know, when I was, uh, before I was in my PhD program, I uh, worked with her as an associate instructor and she took a complete team approach. So I got to observe her extraordinary teaching, even the structure that she uses in teaching where she has um, a hook, some kind of engaging, you know, a way to hook the audience and then it was, uh, clearly sets out the objectives, then goes into guided practice and individual assessment, lots of activities, lots of practical examples. And, and Martha McCarthy, who Suzanne worked with um, before, also had these, these strategies. Um, so she's absolutely been the champion who you know, uh, it was while being mentored by her, I, I decided that I wanted to become a, a professor and, and really, um, you know, fell in love with the idea of being a lifelong educator. But then if I reflect on it, there's also back from um, early days. So I think of K-12 teachers. Um, I specifically, I remember my fourth grade teacher, Joanne Wingler, uh, really took a specialized attention and in individual care and really modeled that ethic of care and, and made you feel special. And my sixth grade teacher, um, who's still teaching, uh, she's retired and has gone back to the classroom this year, uh, uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs. M., who's uh, Janice Montgomery in Columbus, Indiana. She showed all kinds of examples of differential teaching, which is uh, so important for all different levels of learning and high expectations. And then Frau Eaton was a German teacher in high school who was just kooky. And she's you know, also in Columbus, Indiana. She was just wild and fun and energetic and just really understood how you should be your authentic self and um, and, you know, uh, if it means being kooky and, uh, you know, just really fun and free spirited, that's a, that's a good thing, too. Well, that's that's quite a um, I mean, these people are all all kind of demonstrated a different kind of thing for you. It's yes. Very yeah. interesting. Do you feel like you pulled it all together? I mean, is that <laughs> In you, some, are you kooky sometimes? Are in you some ways, in but I'm always learning. I love the opportunity to be able, and even at you know conferences, uh, um, when people are presenting, just what are their presentation styles, and how can I incorporate that in class? Or even you know, like that mutt match that was from a Pacers game. You know, I'm always just trying yeah. to see different ways that might be effective ways to interact with people and and um, you know transmit um, knowledge and and make people be motivated to learn. It's like that I need a whiteboard in the shower thing, right? Where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have an idea and I, but I'm washing my hair. What do I do sort of thing? Or it's three in the morning, go back to sleep. Yeah. Um, I call it my, I call it mad scientist. Do my mad scientist thing. Like stand at the whiteboard, you know, and, and go because um, inspiration comes like from, from those insane different modalities. You don't get it from one place. And I think you shouldn't, right? There's no textbook, especially in higher education, where we don't have formalized training mm -hmm. in um, pedagogy in many cases. You have to go out and think about your prior experiences and resources and all this. I mean, I came from public accounting, where you want to talk about people who um, are great communicators. They're fantastic at it, of course, but like, you know, not used to standing up in front of people all the time to being, that's my job now. So I'm sure you know nothing about that, Michael, right? No, not at all. Nothing. <laughs> None. Um, I can't believe that the fun is coming to an end, but these go really fast. So I'm going to end it with a similar question to what I ask here, but we're going to spin it because I feel like 
the theme of this podcast has been beginning, middle, end, shiny trenches. Let's let's finish off. When you get to the end of the semester, you personally, what do you do? Like, what do you think about? What's kind of the what can I do differently? You know, I I wish, I mean, sometimes I, I try to focus on what went well and and maintain those things, but it's always about what can I do differently? And of course, you hear this from people all the time. If you are looking at student evaluations, it's the one out of a hundred. That's a negative corrective comment. They are like, Oh, why did they say that? What can I do differently? Um, So, yeah, I think I, 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 I think about those, those things at the end of the semester. Um, and it's oftentimes it's really great. It's it's time later that, you know, for instance, I saw somebody around town uh, who, you know, had been a student two years ago. And then that's when you really hear yes. about um, what was impactful. And, 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 and my, you know, currently my son's, you know, school leaders, they, you know, a couple of them have been in the class. And so it, that's really fantastic at the end of a semester to feel like whatever you did has an impact somewhere else. Yeah. I'm going to follow up with this. How do you process that? So the, what can I do differently? I feel like I personally run into that almost every week. Like, oh man, that was okay, but I'm going to change it. And I know I keep, it's the most simplistic thing ever, but a word document in my class folder on my computer. And I just take notes constantly throughout the semester. People think I'm a little nuts for doing that (laughs) because I'm constantly thinking about the next iteration. And I'm curious about how you said, what can I do differently? But how do you process that so that you feel like you made you did something productive in class this year. And, and there's also that room for growth. Yeah, I have the same thing. It's like next time I teach is a, a Word document that I have. And um, so, but, and I, I will say I, I resist my, my inclination to want to change too much yeah. um, because especially if I'm working co-teaching with others, I don't want it to be a whole new thing for them. Um, and also I just think like sometimes it's trial and error and you have to tr- have multiple trials instead of uh, just one time. But um, yeah, so I guess in some ways I have this voice, you know, I have the two competing voices of, oh, change everything to no, 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 just stay with what's working. It's working fine. Um, and, and um, you know, sticking to, to that. So, it's but so I do, familiar. you know, it's from years of identifying what students have said that works and what I can reflect on that seems to be working um, that, you know, has helped. Yeah, awesome. I mean, but it comes, comes down to, okay, how well did they learn this semester? Did mm-hmm. they learn what they needed to yeah. learn? And uh, probably the bigger, the bigger the answer, uh, the bigger the no to that, the more you want to change things and the more you should change things probably, right? Or at least consider it. But yeah. Uh, Absolutely. If you're learning, then yeah, tweaks, right? Tweaks. <laughs> tweaks, but yeah, you're, well, you're experiments right. if you want to purposely experiment. That's, that's you're cool. so right about the balance, though. I think if I could, I would up, like overhaul my class every semester, and I cannot do that if I teach seven preps in an academic year, right? So um, that's a fantastic note to end on. Janet Decker, Associate Professor, School of Education, IU Bloomington, Michael Fassett, class of 2007. Amazing.